Hello and welcome to the Worst Movies We Own podcast. This is my beautiful wife, Natalie. And I am Bobby. This episode we have watched... Masters of the Universe. From what year, Natalie? 1987. I have the power! Natalie, why don't you tell the people at home what the Worst Movies We Own podcast is all about? Bobby and I are married, we watch a lot of films together, and we have decided to watch the worst DVDs we own according to the ratings these films have received on the website Letterboxd. We've not bought any of the films specifically for the podcast, it's a mixture of uh, random stuff included in box sets, charity shop gambles, and things we've bought that other people just don't enjoy. We uh, are hoping to find some real gems amongst these low-rated films, so we are watching each one with an open mind, hoping for the absolute best. Lovely stuff. Masters of the Universe. Yeah. This is uh, a film that's very important to me as a little little boy. Yeah. I used to play with the toys. I used to watch the cartoon. Uh, my dad took me to see this at the cinema. Yeah. It was a canon cinema. We went to see it. It's a canon production. Yeah. And um, I've had four memories of it. I don't think I've seen it properly in about 20 25 years it used to be on tv quite a lot but then you grow out of it and maybe just catch the last 10 minutes or 10 minutes here on tv here or there Mm -hmm. so this is probably the first time i've watched it soup to nuts as an adult as an adult yeah i'd say that's probably fair and he-man's like a really big part of your childhood far more than it is part of mine isn't it i'd say toy wise there was definitely a time when I was all about He-Man. Yeah. I remember one birthday, maybe my sixth or seventh, where I had a birthday party at Wimpy. Mm-hmm. All the kids from my school came along, or my class, and Man of Arms, who's in this film, called Duncan mainly, but Man of Arms. That Man character. at Arms. Man, Man at Arms, is it? I think it's called Man at Arms. Isn't it? Uh, okay, whatever. Yeah, whatever. To disagree. Okay. Uh, he must have been in the bargain bin, <laughs> at Toy Master or Tommy or whatever toy shop everyone yeah. went to because I got six of them <laughs> and it's not like when you get like kind of six stormtroopers you go that works out great because now well, I've got a little yeah. army of stormtroopers and six of the same character all a bit like my dad because <laughs> my, my dad had the same ginger moustache back then <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't the age where you went to a shop and go well is there any chance I could swap them for five different ones I'm like no no you've bought those <laughs> you have to keep those if anything it looks sus doesn't it if you go to a toy shop and you bring five of the same toy back because it doesn't look like you've, you've just nicked, a, them, nicked yeah. a box on the truck. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, looking back nostalgically, mm-hmm. and I think nostalgia is going to play a huge part in this podcast, Masters of the Universe, Transformers less so, Mask for a big time, and I've bought Mask Comics, mm. G.I. Joe, and then I was slightly starting to grow out of action figures but occasionally dabbled in your visionaries or your alien they did alien action figures in the early 90s so inappropriate and last action hero was the last uh, action figures i remember buying okay but yeah he-man masters of the universe i i got castle grayskull for christmas Ooh. and it's the kind of present you know you've got because it's it was massive box <laughs> so when you came down on christmas morning going oh has santa been yeah. I mean, Santa's definitely fucking big. Look at the size of that bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> it was big. Oh, that must have been so exciting. It was, and I played with it a lot. I loved it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, action figures, are, you know, we we grew up in a time where gender stereotyping was very much present. You know, mm-hmm. there was no kind of, like, buying Barbies for boys or, 
getting Hot Wheels for girls. Even McDonald's insisted that if you were <laughs> a certain gender, you had to have a certain toy. They, they, they checked your genitals when they went in. <laughs> That's the box you're getting. <laughs> but I guess um, you, the action figures you've mentioned are kind of like the boy's way of play Because everyone wants to play with dolls. You yeah. want to play with human figures and act out stories and that kind mm. of thing. And you got to do that with those in the same way that I would have done with my Barbies and my Cindy's and the like. You're absolutely right. Like kind of Action Man, <laughs> or G.I. Joe as he's known in America, but the taller one is basically just a Barbie, only all his outfits are military-based. Right. He scuba dives, he's got a naval whites, he's got uh, <laughs> camouflage, but he's he's a Barbie. Nice. Yeah, he's got lots of different outfits. Um, Battle Cat from the He-Man yeah. line of toys had a lovely velvety feel. Yeah, I felt very lovely and velvet. Oh, very, very, nice. very nice tactile thing. Yeah. The toys were made not originally for a, car- a cartoon called He-Man. They were originally designed and produced for Conan the Barbarian. Oh. And they realised the Arnie film was a bit too adult. Yes. So they kept the toy line, but they repackaged them as He-Man. Oh. And then sent them out into the world. And then they made a cartoon as an advert for it. So the cartoon came after the action figures? I would guess the cartoon was released at the same time as the action figures, but it was released specifically like Transformers to yeah. sell a line of toys. Oh, interesting. As were lots of things later on, like, again, G.I. Joe, Mask, mm. all the ones we've already just named a little bit early on in the preamble. Um, and I'm going to keep another link the Masters of the Universe film has to a different film. Mm-hmm. So that's how it marries to Conan the Barbarian, mm. but there's another different film in the future. But it has a strong relation to it, but we'll save that to when we discuss some of what happens in the film. Okay. But yeah, like I say, going to cinema to see this was one of those cinema trips that's there, solid in my head, like going to see Twins. Yeah. Honey, I shrunk the kids. It's like a, it's a real definitive cinema trip. Okay. Uh, went to see lots of films as a kid. Parents were good like that, but going to see Care Bears the movie and My Little Pony the movie because they're Charlotte's Choice my sister yeah I don't remember those films at all oh Care Bears could... treat yourself watch Care Bears the movie well, it's well, awesome I reckon if we buy it on DVD <laughs> we might cover it in this podcast so but what I am going to say is when I watched it today this morning mm. I wasn't watching it going oh this is going to be just like kind of uh, travelling back in time to a more innocent time and just enjoying everything I went with it like kind of coldly critical okay ready to judge it compared to blockbusters of its time blockbusters of now and would i give this film any slack any room to warm my heart if i hadn't played with the toys as a kid i hadn't watched a cartoon as a kid yeah and that's so when we're going to discuss it i'm not going to be doing it for lens of oh he-man's great because to be honest i don't play with action figures anymore i don't mm-hmm. watch cartoons anymore I, I like the new shit yeah i want to watch new stuff and exciting stuff so, whenever I negative or praise this, it certainly doesn't come from, like, that horrible middle-aged, overweight fanboy, you're doing it wrong, or yeah. they never made them like this again kind of point of view. I'm viewing it as if it's not an intellectual property, but just a film standing alone by itself. Oh, and do you know what I've just realised just in this moment? What? You take this podcast a lot more seriously than I do. Yeah, I know, but everyone knows that. Anyone who listens to that knows that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you get to give your opinions more than I do. Hmm. Who asks the questions, who answers them? Yeah, maybe we've got this wrong the whole way through. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's exactly right. Why okay. don't you tell the people at home what the plot <laughs> of Masters of the Universe 
a Canon production, a Gollum and Glovis oh, production. Medicum and Yolum. <laughs> <laughs> good, good boys, good boobies. Um, is, and then we'll chat a bit more. Yeah, I'm going to try because for a kid's film, I found it a little bit difficult to follow. <laughs> but here we go. Uh, Skeletor and Evelyn have taken over Castle Grayskull and they're holding its sorceress prisoner draining her power and waiting for the moon to reach its zenith at which point Skeletor will become not only ruler of Eternia but master of the universe but He-Man is out to stop him and with the help of Man at Arms and his daughter Tila Tela? Tila mm-hmm. he finds the locksmith who invented the key which allowed Skeletor to gain access to Castle Grayskull they use the prototype key to escape and find themselves on Earth where the key goes astray and ends up in the possession of a couple of teenagers. So Skeletor traces the key to Earth, and because he needs it for some reason, I don't understand why, he sends henchmen to Earth to get it back for him. Uh, so the teens team up with the Eternian good guys to keep the key safe from Skeletor, uh, and to keep it safe from a nuisance police detective who decides that he wants it as well, for some reason. Brilliant. You've, you've given them more information than they need. Is that all true, what I just said? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I don't disagree with anything at all. Um, should we discuss the fish out of water aspect? Because, I mean, did you like the fact that for the first 10 minutes, it looks like it's going to be a massive space fantasy adventure. And then for a good hour and 10 minutes, we hang out with some teenagers in Earth. I don't care. You don't care? No, I don't care. Well, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I had, apart from watching uh, He-Man a few times when I was a kid, it was a little bit before my time, so it was, you know, and I wasn't really into it. Uh, I didn't know it was set on a different planet. Okay. <laughs> um, Where so, did you think it was set? I don't know, just like Arizona, maybe. Okay. <laughs> um, so I I didn't care, and whilst I, I was actually blown away by the first few scenes, I thought that, <clears throat> the sets were really elaborate and it did look fantastical, but I don't need that for an hour and 45 minutes. I'm quite happy going to small town America and mm. hanging out with the kids for a little while. No, I don't care. Did yeah. you care? Clearly you uh, cared. I, I think it is a bit of a cheat and a swizz, but I completely understand for a first movie why this happens. You get a little glimpse of what their version of Eternia is. Mm-hmm. You get some amazing production design. You've got loads of characters introduced who are fantastical. Yeah, loads. And iconic and mythic. Mm-hmm. But then it makes sense to go to Earth and have it in small town America and have them on a kind of mission to get back home. It's certainly not the first time that's been done. No, it's been done loads of times. It's been done Howard the Duck. It's been done in Star Trek, Star Trek the four film. And it's a great way of saying, like, do you know what? We can't keep up a Star Wars budget for the entire film. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're, we're not. Fox. Yes. We can't afford it. Um, and, and it, you know, to try that and to fail would be worse. I agree. But what I will say is, even though it is a production that maybe is done on the cheap, it never feels like it. Like, no. there, there's probably occasions where you go, well, you probably needed a few more extras there. But apart from that, every single scene has characters who are well-designed um, and little gadgets that don't need to even exist, really. Yes, I would say that the bits on Earth, though, did you not feel that the town didn't have any kind of, like, homogeneity to it? It <laughs> does feel like they used whatever set was available on the day, so the buildings don't match with each yeah. other. There's, um... There's a 1940s um, Skid Row film noir called Detour that film critics love because it happens all over six sets. Mm. And in a way, this is a space epic that happens all over <laughs> six sets. You've got Eternia 
Castle Grayskull. Mm. And you've got another little bit of Eternia where um, Skeletor does his, like, kind of uh, television casts to yeah. the world, hologram casts to the world, and eight people stand around and watch them. <laughs> <laughs> eight faceless people. And then you've got Prom, mm. Courtney Cox's house, Street Corner, and music a guitar shop. music shop. And that's your lot. We're not going anywhere beyond that, really, at any point. <laughs> and I, I, do you know what? I think it's quite impressive they managed to do it. There is. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm sure you'll have some fascinating information about the uh, budget and how much it made and that kind of thing. I've got but... information like that. Do you want to do uh, facts and figures and numbers now? Well, it seems appropriate. The twins. I don't think I've ever written this much on a piece of paper as my notes for the podcast before. Okay. I've got loads to say. And most of this facts figures, I'm going to dance through a lot of stuff. Feel free to interrupt me though because interesting stuff's going to come up as we go along. Okay. It's not quite the same as the dry, this is who's in it and this is how much it made. There's there's definitely, on, there's revelations. So Masters of the Universe 1987, a canon production, was directed by Gary Goddard. Have you heard of him? No. Gary Goddard... Um, is kind of famous for his 3D ride experiences. Stop trying to read my notes. Oh, so I couldn't if I tried. This is the only film, as far as I can see, he's directed. 3D ride experiences. So, like, you know, like, kind of the Terminator 2 ride, where you go and you watch kind of a video of Terminator 2 oh, that moves around yeah, like and the Star Wars. One. Yeah. He, does, he does ones like that, and he got the job because he did a Conan ride that mm. one of the producers noticed, said that you're the man for the job. And after this... He's famous for doing more of those rides, hmm. Broadway productions of plays. He really had his fingers into the entertainment pie until the last few years hmm. when there were revelations that uh, he'd been abusing young boys. Oh, Gary. Uh, one of whom was Anthony Edwards when he was young. Anthony Edwards, yeah, he really? Wrote an essay. Oh, and... no, actually, I read that not mm-hmm. that long ago, that Anthony Edwards, yeah. And again, we don't have a court setting here. We're not saying these... Fi- Allegations are true, but yeah, Anthony Edwards, ER, Top Gun. He's got no reason to make this shit up. <laughs> um, he married Mayor Winningham recently. Good for him, good for him. It's, but this Gary Goddard guy was part of Brian Singer's kind of, let's call it a circle. Oh. Yeah, so, you know, not looking good. More interesting is the writer, David O'Dell, who wrote for The Muppets. Okay. Wrote The Dark Crystal, wrote Supergirl, uh, which we've covered in this podcast before. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know what? There's a lot of similarities. Well, that's canon as well, isn't it? Uh, no, no, I think Supergirl's just before canon took over the Superman franchise. Oh, okay. But in terms of we start in space, we yeah. go to small town America. Yeah, and there, was, there was yeah, some similarities. Magic invades. There, there's definitely produced by Euron Globus and Menaheim Golan yeah. and also a man called Edward R. Pressman who is a very interesting figure. He's the guy who kind of produced Conan the Barbarian with Dino De Terrace and then kind of said, we can make the toys for a different franchise. Right. And since then, he's been involved in The Crow, Judge Dredd, Street Fighter, mm. and then lots of like classy shit, like talk radio and Neil LeBute films and stuff oh, like that. Okay. So he's, he's a real kind of player in Hollywood. Um, but I think he's probably more responsible for this being a bit more impressive than most canon productions. I see. It stars Dolph Lundgren, Courtney Cox, Frank Langella, Meg Foster, Chelsea Fields, James Tolkien, and lots of people you've never heard of. Mm. It was released on August 7, 1987. It came in third at the box office behind Stakeout and Living Daylights. Mm. It cost £22 but it only made £17.3 in the United States. But there's no idea how much it made... 
toys and stuff. In terms of toys, yeah. VHS, around the world. Like I say, mm-hmm. I went to see it in a Canon cinema in the UK. So you got released in more just the more than just yeah, Canon cinemas. Then. Yeah, but I mean, like, kind of my point is. Just because it didn't make all its money back in America doesn't mean this wasn't a hit around the world. Okay. We bought our DVD copy in Spain. Oh, do we had to? We had to. Yeah, but it wasn't available in America. Yeah. It wasn't available in the UK. But the fact that there's a Spanish copy suggests there was some kind of audience for this around the world. That's true. Yes. So I would say even though it's got a reputation of being a big flop, I don't know that's necessarily true. Mm. It has an internet movie database score of 5.3, so not beloved. And a letterbox score of 2.4, which is kind of higher than I expected it to be. I thought it might be lower than that. Okay. So, you know. Um, and one last little uh, piece of fact and figure trivia is the very last cast credit is a little boy called Richard Spazonda. Ever okay. heard of him? Nope. No reason you should have. He plays a character called Pig Boy, who you see for two seconds near the end of the film. Mm. Uh, Skeletor or someone walks past him and gives him a little nudge. Oh. Yeah? Do you remember okay. that bit? Yeah. You saw it? And you think, well, what's, what's that new creature? Why are we seeing that there? He won a competition on the back of a He-Man box to draw a cartoon of He-Man uh-huh. and get a part in the film. And it's a prominent part, but you do actually notice him, even though he is completely covered in latex makeup, <laughs> and he gets a credit at the end as Pig Boy. Oh, so well nice. done, Richard Spasonda. Yeah, yeah? for you. <laughs> We're going to have a little break and we'll discuss everything we liked and everything we didn't like about Masters of the Universe. Yeah. So Natalie, mm. what did you like about Masters of the Universe? Uh, I like quite a lot about it. Mm. Uh, yeah. So we'll start off with um, the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Sets, costumes, makeup. All were really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like, like, you know, not huge budget. Oh my God, these are amazing. They're going to win an Oscar. But you've, you've already touched on it. Everything's been given just that slightly elevated level of attention mm-hmm. to detail um, there's the, you know, the w- w- when you're first on Eternia and you go to the locksmith's little cave thing, it's full of stuff and it's very, it's well decked out. It doesn't look cheap. Yeah, it's all paper mache and stuff, but people have put effort into it. It's, you know, they've done a good job. His makeup, the little fella, mm-hmm. um, Gwildor. Gwildor. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's it's that kind of rubbery, latexy yeah. makeup that we're used to seeing on the little fellas mm-hmm. in films in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but he's really good. And um, but and then just the general makeup, like the evil Lynn's makeup, really dark lipstick and the eyes and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's really well done. The Skeletor makeup, which it, it, at first it's like, well, he doesn't look like Skeletor. Skeletor, but the way it moves on his face works really well. So they probably tried lots of different versions and that's yeah. the one that works the best. And, and that works. Uh, yeah, d- even the costumes of just the normal Earth people. Yeah. Representative of the time, classy, they look good. I, yeah, I, I was really impressed with a lot of that. Yeah, when the film starts, the, the first couple of uh, title pages look cheapy VHS as fuck. And you go, mm. oh, yeah, it's canon. Oh, no, they do everything on the cheap. This is going to be an absolute shit show. Mm. And then it kind of blows you away for the first ten minutes. Like, kind of, it's not, it's not as good as Star Wars. No. <laughs> uh, but is it on a par with a Willow or a Labyrinth? Yeah, it kind of is around that kind of kind of level, is what I'd say. Mm. The, the, there's other issues I want to discuss about the budget and stuff like that. But in terms of the production design, I think it fills its brief pretty well for an eighties film. Yeah, I don't know if it, if it's quite up to the Willow and Labyrinth standard. But that could be because you have a lot more of that 
um, full makeup mm -hmm. in those films, which is more noticeable. And you have the kind of Jim Henson type puppets, yeah. which are more noticeable and more spectacular, whereas this they've mainly got humans to work with. And let's face it, some of them don't wear a whole lot. So Yeah, there, 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 there is that. Some characters' costumes are quite revealing. Mm. <laughs> Check it out, Dollfire. Well, yeah, but it's all right for me. It's all right for you. Yeah. Little, little girls is what little, they're in. Yeah, little, poor little Charlotte Carroll. Little, little boys. Maybe some little boys. Well, yeah. I, I mean, fair <laughs> enough. Realisations it. watching That's... this. Not me, but... <laughs> it, it is setting your expectations a bit high, though. Of what men are going to be like. Yeah. You yeah, may be better off watching Cruising if you're going to see <laughs> what's out there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's nothing nothing wrong with the way Dolph Lundgren looks in this. Let me just... Uh... Make sure I'm getting what you're saying exactly absolutely right there is because Masters of the Universe sets body standards quite so high for men, yeah. little boys and girls should probably watch Al Pacino, William Friedkin's Cruising <laughs> <laughs> to get better an idea of what a man's body's like. No. <laughs> I don't recommend that. I retract my statement. <laughs> Amazing scenes on the podcast. <laughs> what else did you like? Um, I'm just saying, if you're going to go clubbing in the meatpacking district, you're going to see the gentleman from Cruising. You're not going to see Dolph Lundgren. No. But as a little eight, nine-year-old boy exploring sexuality, no, I don't think you should watch Cruising <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, you're exposing yourself to something that's still quite a long way off. Yeah, that's probably yeah? true. Yeah. Is that okay? That's fair enough by me. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um... Well, it, it kind of leads into this, um, but I think there's something for everyone, uh, not just kind of from a fancying point of view and like little little boys or little girls fancying He-Man or uh, Courtney Cox is kind of presented, well, she is presented as the lead girl, Yeah. but you've also got um, dominatrixy, mean, evil, yeah. still stunningly beautiful, you know, very, uh, Meg Foster from They Live, right? Yeah, that's right, that's a lady. Very impressive woman. Uh, and you've got maybe the sort of slightly more, I don't know, Vanilla? Vanilla, yeah. yeah. Uh, Chelsea Fields, who's one of the most beautiful women in 80s and 90s action cinema, is playing, like, the good girl sidekick, mm. which is a bit weird. But, you know, grey jumpsuit isn't exactly the most exciting costume no, she could wear. No, that's all she gets to wear yeah. the whole way through. There should have been a scene where they have to blend in. And, and dress in 80s garb, yeah. and she looks great in that. I, I, I agree in that something I would bring up as a negative is you've got these people from another galaxy mm -hmm. arriving in 80s small-town America, and they don't really make much of the fish-out-of-water aspect of the fun they can no, have they that. And considering it's the there. 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they, they don't know what a cow is. Yeah. They enjoy ribs for the first time until they realise what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, they fit right in. Yeah. No, no one's walking around the streets to see Billy Barty dressed up as a wizard with gills <laughs> and goes, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. But he tries some sunglasses on and gets a oh, pink Oh, he hazard. does. Yeah. That's true. But they only really do that with that one character and he is the most extreme version. But there's another example of something for everyone. He's like yeah. the younger audience, the little kids are going to enjoy. I enjoyed him the most yeah. as well. You know, he's a funny little wizard fella. Yeah. Um, and... The jokes aren't quite there. Is what I'd say. Like kind of, no. if there's times when you know the line's supposed to be funny, and it is, but it's not necessarily funny. I laughed. Oh well, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's some good bits in it. The the key that is is this sort of like 
uh, MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's uh, this cosmic technology. It's mm-hmm. like you know the fancy thing. They keep making jokes like the the Earth people think it's Japanese because yeah. it's so high tech. Yeah. Or and then but then they're worried it's from Russia. Yeah, it could be it might be spy too. equipment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, so there are the slightly more adult kind of or the things for the parents yeah. as well. So again, something for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. I li- and um, also that way, I like the fact that there are three prominent female characters because it means that you can identify with whichever sort of heroine that you feel or anti heroine or anti heroine that yeah. you know or straight out villain. Yeah, <laughs> Evelyn's all right. Evil Lynn. Evelyn. <laughs> Evil Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> She's efficient. She gets shit done. Yeah. Not like those four henchmen. No, no, they're fucking useless. Oh, they're awful. <laughs> <laughs> and too many of them as well. But anyway. Um, yeah, I, the, the, the ambition of it, the fact that they don't just do things as cheaply or as easily as they can. Mm. Um, and the final kind of battle as well, which... Probably didn't cost that much because you no. don't really see what is going on around them, but they use light, like really like a, like a vivid kind of red light and a blue light really effectively with just He-Man and Skeletor, just all the focus on them, fighting it out. And it's a good fight. And then you get the, you yeah, know. There's a reason for that. Oh, why is that? Well, it's, it's in the Internet Movie Database trivia page. So how much we can take this as true fact, mm. I'm not sure. But... There's definitely a point in the final battle when it is going to be Skeletor and Hema having a joust mm. for dominance. And suddenly the cast of thousands disappear, mm. a lot of the set dressing disappears, and it's lit like a disco scene of yeah. huge streams of light. Mm. While fa- as if the sword fight they're having is taking place in the cosmos rather mm. than just on a platform. Yeah. I thought that was quite an interesting stylistic choice. I thought it worked quite well oh, as yeah, well. I, I thought we are going up a notch now. Suddenly we are, like in a cartoon, suddenly background disappears and it's just racist yeah. in colour. But according to Internet Movie Database Trivia, which again, wouldn't exactly bet the farm on, but it's absolutely true. Allegedly, Canon pulled the plug on the production before they managed to finish filming. And they hadn't picked up the shots of the final joust. Mm. They waited a couple of months later and just filmed it with Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella a little bit further down the line. Now, that kind of bears out with what you see, that no one else is in the scenes anymore. Okay. So it kind of does make sense. Does Dolph Lundgren look a couple of months older? I don't know. But it doesn't make sense in terms of how they would save money by doing that, because you've still got to get Frank Langella into his makeup. Yeah. And that's going to be an expensive process to suddenly bring everyone back to do that. And secondly... Films aren't filmed, very rarely are films filmed in chronological mm. order of, well, this is the first scene, so we're filming yeah, yeah. it first. It, you don't film the <laughs> the big fight at the very end of the film. Mm. It, it, that's, that's just not how cinema works, that kind of... Um, so I don't know how much I believe that's true, but what I will say is I agree, it's our main piece of action throughout the entire film that's actually exciting. Mm. And it certainly visually goes up a notch, even though you know exactly how they've achieved it. Yeah. I don't mind. I, I, I think it hit a little note in my core that went, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I, I'm into that and it works really well. I would have preferred that the fight choreography was a little bit better, but we can discuss that in what we didn't like later that on. That was fine. I, it doesn't matter whether it was an accident or because of time. But even if all that is true, what it says on Internet Movie Database, mm. you know, 
doesn't matter. It works. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, anything you want to add about what you liked about it? Oh, you've, you, that's everything you liked? Yeah, I think so. Everything you liked was production design, ambition. That's what, costumes, costumes, people, and, yeah. And, all right, okay. Um... No, I, I think I think I'm with you there. I think the good qualities are certainly it's more ambitious than it needs to be, and even though there's a clear cost-cutting exercise in the second act of the film of mm. let's let's place it in eighties Earth, those scenes are fine. What didn't you like? Okay, what didn't I like? Hold on, I need to turn my page over. Oh, then am I editing that out? If you like, um, I would say it's it's a, a bit too cluttered. In terms of characters, because yeah. I, uh, it's not that I struggled to follow every character. I knew who everyone kind of was, mm-hmm. but there were just so many that fall by the wayside in terms of you not caring. Yeah. So there's... I don't mind so much the core, mm-hmm. the goodies, but there's like a guy in a music shop who's so annoying. And if they could have found a way of getting rid of him, that would have been useful because he just disappears anyway. Yeah. There's two. Two things here, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. It is a problem when you've introduced so many characters and yet a lot of them end up just sitting around doing nothing yeah. while things things happen. Uh, I think a good example is Courtney Cox kind of is built up to be the second lead over the first half of the film. Yeah. And even before she's injured and she's like trying to recover, mm. she's kind of pushed to the background by her boyfriend mm. and he kind of takes over as the earthling who's going to help them get home yeah and she's got nothing to do then at that point that's true and i think that's a shame and she fucks up she does fuck up i mean that's quite quite a good scene though if you're a little kid you'd be confused about what's going on there i mean we as adults know exactly what's happened yeah they're in a siege situation the baddies want the cosmic key mm. and courtney cox wants nothing more than her parents back who died in a tragic plane crash yeah the baddies have seen a picture of these dead parents mm-hmm Evelyn turns herself to look like dead mum. Yeah. And Courtney Cox goes out and gives her a cuddle, reunion, and dead mum says, listen, we haven't been about because we are now scientists mm-hmm. working on just some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. What we really need is kind of a metal shiny thing you've been carrying around with you that you know is a cosmic key that the baddies want, but we need that too. Any chance you can pop it down the alleyway to us? Mm. And she does it. Yeah. And then turns out it's not mum. No, it's not. It's bloody evil, isn't it? I know. <laughs> oh, it really hurts. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, shocking. Mmm. Nasty. Very much so. But, I, yeah, I, I'd say that's a problem. And also a problem with the, the film in general is Mattel told the producers that they didn't want He-Man to kill anyone. He's allowed to destroy robots, which is what you could say the troops are. They're, they're man they're, Yeah, they're, they're in armour. Yeah. <laughs> but... He's not allowed to kill any characters. Yeah. And there seems to be, in general, just an idea that no one's going to die mm. during the event. It just means suddenly it becomes a conga line of characters with nothing to do. Whereas you could easily have, like, kind of uh, given Duncan and his daughter something to do elsewhere and not mm. really seen them again. There's a lot of standing around, is what I'd say, as a film. Once everyone's introduced, there's a lot of standing around. It's the middle section. It kind of repeats the same thing mm. over and over again um, in different places. I'd say, I'd say there's a good example of that in the finale as well, in that we know the quest is to get the cosmic key, get back onto Eternia, rescue the sorceress. Mm. But He-Man's captured by the end. He's mm-hmm. in chains. And... Courtney Cox, her boyfriend, little wizard guy, man at arms, his daughter, copy's been chasing them. Mm. 
travel through space and time to arrive at the big finale just as things are about to kick off. But they're in no better position than they were when they downed arms 10 minutes earlier and let He-Man be captured. And they don't really add anything to when they turn up to rescuing He-Man. He-Man kind of rescues himself because Skeletal's a bad aim with his lasers. Oh, yeah. It would have made more sense for them to shoot one of He-Man's chains, and that's the little thing they've contributed to He-Man being free. Because all they really do is turn up and go, we're in out, and then He-Man gets to have his fight. Oh, yeah, I never really thought of that. But they weren't really necessarily going to help He-Man. They were going to get to where they needed to be so the sorceress could could fix Courtney Cox's leg. Yeah, I know, but even so, mm. it does, doesn't serve a lot of narrative purpose for us to be spending 10 minutes in a parking lot or a little park so that they can travel back to town <laughs> with everything else going on. That is true. Okay. What else didn't you like? I didn't like, you just mentioned those storm men and yeah. stormtrooper men. Yeah, I didn't like those. You didn't like the uh, the robot fascist no, background army? Partly because it, it felt of them. too much like it was ripping off. Star Wars. Yeah. The, the very beginning is very kind of Skeletor is channeling Darth Vader and mm-hmm. you've got the Stormtroopers and that was my fear. I wasn't necessarily so worried about the cheapness. Yeah. Um, I was more worried that, oh God, this is going to try so hard to be Star Wars like certain yeah. other films that we've seen have, have been. And and it, it kind of fades away but then it comes back again at the end whenever I see those really annoying Stormtroopers. Though, um, when they come to Earth they do have hoverboards. So yeah. that's one thing that they've got over the Stormtroopers. Yeah, the hoverboard bits were quite good. Like, yeah. kind of, there's... There's a really good sequence towards the end where Skeletor arrives on Earth and his army comes out with him mm-hmm. and it's a big procession. And you kind of know, even though it looks like he's on a big floating f- throne barge, yeah. it's like a crane or yeah. something pulling it along. But it works really well and then nothing really happens. <laughs> and it's so annoying, you kind of go, the shit is going to go down, Earth is going to be conquered by a skeleton alien despot. Oh shit, man! What is good? What? How are they going to get out of this? And he just goes, "I'll have Eamon. See you later, everyone else." He pops back. Yeah, but that's just efficiency because he doesn't need to do anything on Earth because he knows that when he gets back to Castle Grayskull and the moon rises, uh, he's master of the universe anyway. Yeah, he's in the universe. Uh, go. He doesn't need to do anything whilst he's there. My point is, and this is a point that comes up many, many times in this podcast. There's moments where you can have a good bit of action. And instead, there's a lot of standard around. And we've discussed it before on kind of sci-fi fantasy films. So I do feel occasionally it'd be nice to have a bit of action in the bad ones. No. The only thing they're missing in that scene where he appears on his massive barge from outer space and goes along the high street is you need a little old man sat outside a cafe with a bottle of wine. Yeah. Uh, drinks his wine, sees it, does a double take and then pours his bottle of wine away because he's drank too You're much. You're not a fan of the pigeon double take? The pigeon. The pigeon sitting going, what? <laughs> <laughs> They're all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess my real gripe with Master's Universe, and I, I quite liked it, mm. is it's an action adventure movie with very little action. And when it is, there is occasionally like a sword fight, it's it's quite sloppy and scrappy. You're always going on about, oh, there's not enough action. Action's rubbish. <laughs> action is not rubbish, darling, but we've had this argument on the podcast before in more heated episodes like Planet of the Apes. I'm not going to have it again. I don't think it's wrong. <laughs> To expect to turn up to an action movie and see some set pieces. <laughs> yeah, but you know how it's going to end. There, there, was the, there was the action with the sword fight at the end, and that is fine for me. I like the bits where they're eating fried chicken, and the little wizard fella is wearing sunglasses. 
That's I, what I like. I enjoyed those moments too, but they even those were few and far between. Yeah. And essentially, it is a lot of standing around repeating the plot. <laughs> yes. By more and more characters. Well, yeah. this guy doesn't know the plot. Let's tell him it. <laughs> it tried my patience in the middle, but I did not necessarily. I wasn't sat there waiting for an action sequence. I was sat there waiting for maybe like a musical number or a romance. They were in the music shop. They would have had a karaoke machine or a romance. Yeah, there is no romance, really. But I guess you've got the kind of tension between He-Man and Tila. And the teenagers are in love, but... No, they're not teenagers. Mm. She's not graduated school yet. Yeah, but she looks really old. Yeah, I know, but she looks really old in friends, darling. Yeah, I know, but so does he. <laughs> they do look too old. Mm-hmm. What they could have done is, is had actual teen teenagers. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, someone with like an Austin O'Brien energy. Yeah. And that, Because the, there's no sexual frisson between He-Man and... Uh, what's her face? Julie, the girl, the yeah. Earth girl. There's one kind of like Teela gets a bit jealous and she makes a sarcastic remark. Yeah. We could do without that, and they, you know, just younger kids. Plus, that would be a bit more believable in terms of them just completely accepting without question that these people are from other space. Yeah, because yeah. t- younger teenagers would believe that. You prefer a Goonies, Monster Squad, Stranger Things kind of vibe. Yeah, I, I don't, especially because. It was little boys and girls your age who were going to Young, see this. Well, younger than even the kids we're suggesting would be in the film. Yeah. yeah. So it seems a little bit strange that there isn't that kind of bridging uh, mm. character, age character. And on that, do you think the monster mercenaries are maybe a little bit, and Skeletor are a bit too full fat for a kid's film? I don't know. I think Skeletor probably would have scared me as a child. The, uh, the goons, maybe not so much because of the face makeup is a bit more animalistic they're a bit one's a bit monkeyish and the other one's kind of like the, the beast guy's like the character from one of those video games is he now oh there's the the, the video game where you're the little the beast man beast master or wolf, the wolfish thing oh yeah i know the one you know the mean, one yeah, you, you, you turn into the wolfish thing yeah. occasionally uh, it's called beast something altered beast Yes, that's the one. Yeah. That's what he reminded me of. Mm. So they weren't too bad. But you tell me, I mean, you, you were a child who was affected by these things. Well, I, I, I was a sensitive boy. I think that's fair enough. And at the age when this came out, eight, I think my parents would still be very much along the lines of this and he gets nightmares really easily. Mm. He's probably going to piss the bed. <laughs> I don't want to deal with pissy sheets. Uh, so are we going to take him to see this? And I probably pestered them for this. I didn't have any nightmares. And we probably were all right. And this was probably like a breakthrough for them that they didn't have to worry about me seeing Return to Wars or Time Bandits or... God, Return to Wars is much scarier Yeah, but Return this. to Wars was the, the film that caused the problems. Yeah. Return to Wars, so I went to see when I was maybe six, seven, and mm. it gave me nightmares for months. Like many of my generation, it, mm. it's like, yeah, there's pure horror, pure mm. adult horror in the Return to Wars. You watch it as an adult and go, who the fuck made this for kids? And it's not a kid's film. Uh, but my parents took me to see it and suddenly, oh, he's too sensitive to watch anything else like this. And to be honest, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't go watch an adult horror film as a nine, ten-year-old. I mm. found Nightmare on Elm Street really scary. We've covered oh, this yeah. in the podcast before. I th- but I'd say this is probably one of those ones that meant, all right, he, he was all right in Master Universe, even though they were quite scary, some mm. of those. So maybe we'll take him to see Willow or maybe we'll yeah. let him go see. And then like, a couple of years later, I was watching Predator and the like and that's yeah yeah i think probably this is just right i mean you want some darkness in kids films otherwise it's going to be all kind of that's the problem and i don't want to go back over all ground because we have talked about this in the podcast before but a lot of kids films the animated ones especially these days 
there isn't really any kind of peril in them. It tends to be more like, oh, you know, they've got a depressed character or like yeah, maybe yeah. he's dying of cancer or no, something yeah. like that. You've got to get in touch with like the old more... feelings. Oh, yeah, yeah, they've got all the feelings getting along. Oh, they fall out, they banter, they, they get along. Fuck that. I want to see Jafar get his ass kicked yeah. by Aladdin. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. So a little bit, a little, like, little bit of light horror. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think mild peril should be in the films. I'd say this is probably just about borderline where a PG should be. I'd yeah. say it'd definitely be a 12 these days. You reckon? I'd, I'd say it was, even though it's definitely aimed towards a younger market. Mm. This, this, the design of those monster men is just a bit... You don't see anything that for long anymore in the Marvel films or the... Mm. Yeah, I guess so. Anything else you didn't like? No, I, I enjoyed myself. Um, I didn't... My attention wandered a little bit in, in the middle section. I couldn't let go in my mind of the fact that I, could, I don't understand why the why Skeleton needed the key. Yeah. And it's probably because I missed a line early on in the film and I wasn't paying for attention. He just didn't want them returning before the the, the moon reaches Zenith. But then he takes He-Man back. I mean, yeah, that's no, asking for trouble, he's isn't it? Idiot, man. Yeah, he's, he's an idiot. <laughs> uh, okay, that, that's fine. He's that all blast already, that Skeletor. Yeah, I like him. <laughs> um, I guess the one thing I didn't like that hasn't come up is Dolph Lundgren. You don't like Dolph Lundgren? He looks great as He-Man. Yeah. But you couldn't see him pulling off Adam. Which is not explored in this film, but in the cartoons, and I know this isn't the cartoons, mm. He-Man's a bit like uh, Superman and Clark Kent. He's got a perso- another persona who has a nice pink waistcoat, who's called Adam, who's a bit of a wimpy prince. Oh. Battle Cat is a wimpy cat as well. Uh-huh. Snarf Snarf, I think is what he says. Oh, yeah. And no one knows that he's He-Man, and when he goes, I have the power, he's turned uh. into He-Man so he can solve problems in a physical manner. Does he wear trousers? Yeah, he wears trousers as Adam. Okay. Um, in the films, He-Man's He-Man all the time. He's mm. just a warrior who's trying to free Eternia mm. from the clutches of evil fascist uh, Skeletor so he can be fascist leader for good. Yeah. <laughs> when, 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 at the very end, when they look at Skull and the sorceress is back to a normal health, and it looks very fascist. It's not like they've gone, everyone's partying, everyone's happy, there's guards everywhere, they're just in different uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's not great. And I think possibly a problem with the film is this should be He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and he's like a supporting character in the film. But do you think that's a language thing? He had in his contract that he had to have three tries of redubbing himself mm. before they'd redub him mm. with another actor. And eventually Gary Goddard, who we mm. talked about earlier, yeah. decided to let him just do his normal accent but reduce his lines because it makes things easier. Oh, so when you hear him talking, that is his voice. That's him. It's voice. pretty clear. He doesn't have many lines, though. He doesn't have many lines that last more than, say, three or four words. No. I don't think He-Man needs to be charismatic. Mm. I don't think he needs to be in charge of saying lots of plot. Because he's a beefcake. But I do think it's a problem when you're watching a He-Man movie and He-Man disappears for 10, 15 minutes at a time and then kind of is a background character a lot of the time. And I think the problem there is Dolph Lundgren. He looks the part. I'm not going to say he doesn't. His hair looks fantastic. No, His yeah. body looks fantastic. Man can wear a cop piece and a cape like no mother motherfucker. <laughs> but there's, a, there's probably a reason why Dolph Lundgren, even though he's had a consistent career, never rose to the heights of Arnie and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Mm. Yeah. His best, his best role is Universal Soldier, where he's the villain. Okay. He's got a really good scene where he wears... He's in Vietnam, he wears everyone's ears around his neck. Oh. Uh, and then later on, some of his 
friends of baddie soldiers are dying so he brings them into a supermarket and puts them into the fridges and then starts ranting at everyone in the supermarket about what Vietnam was like oh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's great okay. <laughs> best Vietnam film ever uh, right <laughs> <laughs> I think we've lost all our credibility. Uh, no, this is the worst movie we've podcast. Of course, we're going to love Universal Soldier. I've never seen it. Uh, you would love it. You wouldn't, because it's by Ron Demerick, who you don't like. Uh, yeah. Let's have a little break with the regular questions, yeah? Yeah. So before we do regular questions, mm-hmm. how did you feel about the end credit cliffhanger scene? Oh, well, I mean, this this is terrible. This is something I hate about films now, and... Maybe this is credits. where it all started. <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's nothing worse when a film finishes than having to wait until the end of the credits for a post credit scene. Now, back then it wouldn't have been so bad because the credits lasted what two minutes at most. Now we're talking these films that are made with computer nerds. Yeah. All over the world, mm-hmm. so you have what is it ten minutes of credits you usually have to wait through to see a tiny clip of some character that you don't know who they are because you don't watch the Avengers walk down a corridor and go into a room where everyone gasps that someone's in that room and you don't know who they are and you don't give a shit and you just want to go home and you want piss. Yeah, I, I would agree that the Marvel machine has got to the point now where the end credit sequences t- generally tend to be, go look that up on Wikipedia. <laughs> You've got no idea who that is. Do you read comics yet? You've still got no idea. Go look up on Wikipedia. That's who Harry Styles might be playing in another film. And it, you're just kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, do you know what? I'm, I'm not... I'm not gonna, and it annoys me to have to sit through the credits that should be at the beginning of the film mm. to then sit through the credits that are too long, like you say, because you're getting every person who programmed a background or whatever on Lock an effect shot. And yet on those endless credits of names of people who worked on the film, and you know, more power to you if you work on a film, good for you. The people who wrote and drew the comics that these stories are based on, on credited. Fuck <laughs> those people who worked on the film. Just in every piece of work that I do, I get credited for. Yeah, I Everything agree. I proofread at work, I don't get my bloody name on the end of it, do I? <laughs> it was quite fun sitting through the Masters of the Universe credits to see Dolph Lundgren's drama coat, pilot <laughs> coat, trainer and hairdresser. When you noticed that, you said, he's bald. Oh yeah, because I thought it was from Frank Langella. <laughs> Probably doesn't need a dialect coach as well. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> um, so, but... At the very end of Master Universe, if you do sit all the way through it, and I didn't as a kid in the summer, because these things weren't... Yeah, because why would you? No, the, the first ever end credit sequence that I know of is there's a seventies adaptation of the comic book series Doc Savage, mm. Man of Steel, or Man of Bronze. But yeah, Doc Savage, Man of Bronze, and at the very end of that, there's like a little cliffhanger of I'll be back. And Flash Gordon has one. Yeah. And this has one. So it's kind of of a piece of, if you're making a comic book movie, sometimes it's good to suggest that James Bond will return. And for this one, we have bald skeletal pop out of the water soaked in gloop going i'll be back and you kind of go yeah i didn't want you to come back oh that's nice but i didn't know yeah, it happened no. until, yeah. until i had it on tape taped off the telly i had no idea that that happened i've been and sat and watched films where i've literally not wanted to leave the cinema because i've enjoyed the film so much and the song is really good over the credits yeah. and i've sat through that and um, we went to see the Goonies at the cinema mm-hmm. when it was one of these re-releases. And yeah. you don't, what, how could you possibly leave yeah. during the music at the end of the game? Old-fashioned superstition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're fixing your seat. But you don't. none of these films now that do this have have that. This boring music. I, I think occasionally they can get an end credit sequence really good. 
it annoys me when it's a little shitty joke at the end. Mm. And it annoys me when it's setting up someone you've got no idea who they are. <laughs> but I think, like, kind of originally the idea of Samuel L. Jackson visiting people going, we are setting up in the shit of the Avengers is a really good way of building towards that Avengers movie. Mm. But you didn't have to keep doing it when you've got nothing to say. I remember reading on the internet when Black Panther came out and in America it was treated like um, a celebration of black culture that they not really had before. And people were writing on the internet, well, when I was in the cinema, there was old people there who don't go to see Marvel movies usually. And they were leaving. And I went up to them and said, no, no, you need to stay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure those old black people were like, no, no, I want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> the car's parked on the car park. I want to go. I don't care. <laughs> Sit through 10 minutes of credits to see... Oh, Think he's still alive. <laughs> it's also not fair on the cinema staff. Yeah. Because they can't get in until the very end of the film to do their sweep up. And now, you know, with COVID and stuff, there's even more that they need to do. If anything, we're shortchanging ourselves because they can't put as many films on at the cinema because it's taking so long in between each one. I'd say it's almost definitely went to see Licence to Kill last night at the mm-hmm. cinema and just a crowd of people queuing up to go in after the time it's due to start because probably it was four on before. And the audience is sitting in there waiting to see some jokey little Jeff Goldman turn up. I don't, I've not seen it yet, but I've seen Jeff Goldman turn up to go, hello, I'm still in the franchise. Uh, <laughs> or something like that. And uh, and the, rather than let's get the cinema clean and let the people who bought a ticket to something that's going to actually be good go in. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what I, I do quite like to watch the main credits mm-hmm. when you see people's names go up. And usually because it's the cast first, you watch the cast. And and most of the time at the cinema, that's when they'll put the light on. Yeah. Once it goes to the, mm. the crap credits that no one cares about. Um, <laughs> and that's how they should do it. There, there is one way a film should end. There is one golden You like the template. faces, don't you? Yeah, you should have the faces. You have been watching. Even though I know who people are. Yeah, you've been watching. <laughs> you want to see the face, Especially the way Scream does it, where you see them move and then it stops. And they have a little smile sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Why Tra- Trading places. Every, Every film, film should end yeah. like trading places. Um, given you a teased for Masters of Universe 2 he'll be mm. back he yeah. didn't come back oh. it's not, not happened no. would you have watched the sequel? well I never saw this as a kid but if I had seen it as a kid yeah do you want to know what happened why there wasn't a sequel? oh yeah why, why wasn't there a sequel? well obviously this was treated as a flop because mm. it didn't make back its budget in America even though like I say in my, in my head I can't see how it didn't make money with all the kind of product placement tie-ins VHS toys, all those things, it definitely did not make a profit. Mm. And I'm pretty sure Gollum and Globus's remit, apart from distributing in America and Israel and the UK, mm. would have been to sell the rights onto international markets that weren't there. Mm. So it probably was pre-sold as well. It didn't need it didn't need to make all its money in America. Mm. But allegedly Dolph Lundgren asked for a lot more money to come back as him <laughs> and right. they weren't willing to pay for that. But at this point they already had a script they already had sets designed, they would have props, stuff that they kept from the original film. Yeah. So what they decided to do was take the script for Masters of the Universe 2, change all the characters' names to electric guitars, brands. Right. And call it Cyborg with a John Claude Van Damme. Oh, I've never heard of it. It came, came out in uh, 1990, I think. It's a sci-fi dystopia action film starring John Claude Van Damme. Electric said, guitars. Their, their names are all like Rickenbacker and uh, oh, okay, Stratocaster and stuff they're like humans, that. Though. They're, 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 they're humans, though. They're not. Some of them might be cyborgs. Okay. <laughs> I understand. But you understand what happened. Yeah. They basically got the script, got it as a Word document, and every time a character's name appeared, so let's say He Man, they said, replace all Fender. 
Oh, well. And that, that film came out. Why not? It's called Cyborg. And, and, and if anything, it's probably stood the test of time more than Master of the Universe. Well, yes, it could have been great, but never mind. <laughs> I don't think we've... Re- you know, it's no great loss. I'm not so sad that there's not a sequel. <laughs> right, we've blabbered enough. Do you want to do regular questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Number one, who was the Michael Parks of him? When everyone else was collecting a paycheck, who put in full effort and really stole the show? Okay, I was torn between two. How could you be torn between two, Carl? I really like Billy Barty yeah. as a little fella, and I really like Frank Langella as Skeletor. But Billy Barty had an easier ride because he probably got to redouble his lines afterwards. So I'm going to give it to Frank Langella. It's definitely Frank Langella. He is, even if he's not a snarky, nasty, bitchy little Skeletor like you expect him to be, yeah. he's given the Shakespearean performance of Skeletor. There's like seven or eight minute monologues at times. He's got beautiful lines that probably weren't even in the script original, like kind of the loneliness of good is like the loneliness <laughs> of evil. The man's given, the man's given full fat evil realness <laughs> it's a proper villain it's a better villain than the film deserves he's fantastic in the role it's got to be frank Langella. all right okay i'm not disagreeing with you but you know give some snaps to billy barty billy well. barty does what billy barty does <laughs> and he does it beautifully <laughs> and you know let's remember i'm ignoring chelsea fields as well who's just gorgeous <laughs> yeah you can't give it to someone for being gorgeous we have it in the past courtney cox is gorgeous uh, courtney cox is courtney cox <laughs> product placement who kicked us some cash to have their wares on show burger king burger king i, I got w- so excited when they saw it because <laughs> i never spotted any product i was really like curious like kind of when we enter into 80s America, they're in a, like a fast food chain called Robbie's, which seems to be chicken and ribs. I'm mm. wondering, is this one that we've just not heard of? Is that a real one? But no, later on, they've got Burger King in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney Cox don't eat well. No. But there's also like kind of product placement for electronic products and uh, trainers and stuff. Oh, right. I'm going to introduce our new question now. Yeah. Because um, he's turned up. Bill Clay, he's coming for a cuddle while we record the podcast. Bill Clay's our kitten. Mm-hmm. Did Bill Clay enjoy the film? Bill Clay, what did you think of Masters of the Universe? He slept for it, didn't he, darling? He's thinking about it. Uh, no, we, no oh. we need to keep it dead air. Yeah, no, no. Um, <laughs> he, he didn't like it. The no, he didn't like the sound mixing. He didn't like the sound mixing, but he slept through. Whereas sometimes a clueless will really capture his imagination as it watching oh, it. Oh yeah, he enjoyed clueless. But uh, when it came to Master University, he just had a little sleep. I think it. he liked breaking the waves as well. He did enjoy breaking the waves, mm-hmm. and he likes the X Files as well. He likes to climb up and actually watch the TV during the X Files. Yeah. But Master Universe was not kitten friendly. It's a bit lowbrow for him as well. Oh really? Mm. Okay. If you could make one change to Masters of the Universe, what would it be? Less middle. More action. <laughs> no, just less middle. You'd, you'd feel less middle if there was an action set piece in it, mm. involving He-Man. Preferably. I don't think a child's film with so little plot should be an hour and 45 minutes long. I was I fully expecting this to be an hour and 27 minutes. I, w- I would gut 15 minutes out of it as yeah. well, but you're only allowed to make one change. That's why I'm not replacing Dolph Lundgren, and that's why I'm not gutting 15 minutes well, out of it. Well, you can leave Dolph Lundgren on the moment, it's fine. <laughs> Um, who was the, where would you cast James Spader? Sorry. Oh, well, this is an easy one because the guy who plays the boyfriend is awful. He's such a tit. Uh, <laughs> so Spader's coming straight in with his dreams of synthesising. Yeah. Yeah. He's the cool boyfriend. That's, you know, mm. totally believable. Should there have been a sex scene? Mm. Well, it's a kid's film. So, in principle, no. It's a kid's film where most of the characters are wearing bondage gear, though. I know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind... I wouldn't have minded seeing like maybe a flashback to when He-Man and Evelyn got it on. Mm-hmm. Because I bet that happened. Yeah. 
Well, like kind of Duncan or Man at Arms, as he, as he should be called. Mm. Uh, <laughs> when uh, Greelaw or whatever his name is, is say, oh, a beautiful lady came and uh, told me to make an evil key. Oh, that'd be evil in. It's like, the, according mm. to Duncan, there's only one beautiful lady in all of the universe. <laughs> well, it's got a population of about 20, this planet. So, yeah, that's a pretty good call, isn't it? Which brings us to our last regular question. Was Masters of the Universe worse or better than Bad Boys? Yeah, it was better than Bad Boys. I'm going to say it's better than Bad Boys, even though it's not as action-packed or as funny or as well-made as Bad Boys or as starry as Bad Boys. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked what it was trying to do. Yeah. And uh, I think in some respects it was very impressive. Like, especially when you know its backstory. Mm. It started off as a toy line they couldn't really use mm-hmm. based on a cartoon that was probably already going out of favour when it was made and produced by people who are known for saving a penny. Mm-hmm. It's very impressive of what they achieved. Yeah. I, I, whilst it has its issues, I like the fact that people sat down and tried to write a decent story that would be an adventure and entertaining and they put some thought into it and they made things a bit spectacular. And, you know, if I had watched this as a kid, I think I would have looked forward to it being every time it was on. I have no idea why I didn't watch this. I don't mm. know. You said it was on TV or something. You, you probably just it. missed it when it was on TV. Yeah, because I have no, none of it. I thought when we watched it, maybe some of it would ring a bell. Never watched no it. No idea what channel I used to show it regularly. I'm guessing probably BBC One. But mm. it it strikes me as something that Channel 5 might have had on during the summer holidays. Yeah. By the late 90s. But it's possible that I was not blown away by the cartoon. I wasn't fussed for it. So mm. maybe I connected those and thought, well, it's not the film for me. Next episode. We are going to kind of jump the rails of the order of what we're going to be watching because there's a film that's kind yeah. of always been lingering of we're going to be doing it soon mm. and you've just had enough. You've, thrown, you've said, listen, I want to watch it. Yeah. It's Neil Jordan's In Dreams starring Annette Benning and yeah. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. And that's what we're going to be watching next month. Yeah, because I bought it ages ago and you're like, oh, it's going to come up on the podcast in the next few weeks. And that was, what, 18 months ago? We weren't even living here then. All right, then. We didn't even have a little kitten called Bill Clay. He's given himself a quite furious clean during the podcast. Yeah, it feels dirty. Oh, We'll get you in a little cod piece and a cape. <laughs> okay. So. Oh, there's a cat in here, man. He could be the little cat. The battle cat? Yeah. Yeah, it could be. He feels lovely and velvety as well, doesn't he? Mm, yeah. Anyway, that's enough of us hard crushing on our kitten. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to say good journey to you. Yeah, good journey. They yeah. can't see us doing the hand signal. But that's what they say in Monsters. You know, <laughs> just giving all dozen of our listeners the wanker side. <laughs> no, I tell them that. It's radio. <laughs> but... About ten minutes before the end of the film, they suddenly introduced the concept <laughs> of the good journey into Master Universe, and we're going to introduce it now as well. Mm. Thank you for listening, Good Journey. Thank you for listening. I'm not saying that. <laughs>